Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. If we were a baseball team, I suppose that I would be our pinch hitter. Since John called me on Thursday morning <laughs> to say, oh, Scott, you got anything you, you could share on Sunday? So that's, I, I, I kind of feel a bit of a need for prayer. So can I, would you mind if I prayed for myself <laughs> and asked God uh, to help me this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the worship team, for the way that they led us this morning. And in worshiping you, we thank you for all who have participated in your worship now. Thank you for those who are able to be with us from home because of a technology. We pray that our hearts would be warmed by your word, that you would help me to speak your word that we might be challenged in our own lives by the things that we'll look at, and most of all, that you would be glorified in what we do. Please help me, I pray, and give me your words to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you know who Percy Spencer is? I actually wasn't expecting anyone to know who per per Percy Spencer is. That's right, none of you. He is the American engineer generally credited with the invention of the microwave oven. I'm indebted to him. <laughs> almost, much as, almost as much as I'm indebted to the inventor of the search engine, which allowed me to quickly and easily find out his information on the computer. I enjoy using the microwave to make one of my favorite meals, leftovers. My lunches at school almost entirely consist of leftovers, canned soup, or sandwiches in that order, with the occasional trip to the lunch line when I've been too lazy to prepare any of these three. Do you like leftovers? We are friends who call them warm Dups. Get it? Play on the words warmed ups. Okay. I do run into some people who don't like leftovers, but I put them in the same category as people who don't like kittens or puppies or babies. There's just something morally off about them. Debbie and I are having leftovers for lunch today, and the microwave oven makes this so easy. In fact, now that we're cooking for just two people, we don't have to cut recipes in half. Just throw what we don't eat the first time into a microwavable container, and another meal is ready to go. Thank you, Percy Spencer. And I'll send thanks out to Sandy Lockwood listening on live stream. In a conversation Friday, Sandy encouraged me by saying that she didn't mind it one bit that today's sermon was going to be a repeat, a sermon she had probably heard before. She told me that many foods are even better the second day, after the flavors have had a chance to blend together. So when Jonathan texted me on Thursday to ask me to preach today, I just went into my file and took out a sermon I had preached before and said that today we will have leftovers. Okay. Today I'd like to think about a narrative section of the Old Testament and think of the lessons that we can learn from that narrative for our lives thousands of years later as we begin the year 2022. Today I want to think about lessons from the life of Manasseh 
king of Judah. A bit of background is in order to make sure all of us understand the broad context of Manasseh's life. Our narrative is from the book of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. These Old Testament books record for us the history of Israel during the time of the kings of Israel and Judah. The nation of Israel, you might remember, asked God for a king because they wanted to be like the nations around them. God granted their request and gave them Saul, who was a physically impressive man who turned out to be less than an impressive leader. Saul was succeeded on the throne by David, then by David's son Solomon, and during their reigns, Israel was at the height of its power and glory and influence. After Solomon's reign, Israel was split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel called in the south and the kingdom of Judah in the north. The southern kingdom began badly and its succession of kings went from bad to worse. In the northern kingdom, there were good kings and bad kings, with the good kings seeking God and the bad kings forsaking God and running after idols. The immediate context of Manasseh's reign is the reign of his father Hezekiah described for us at the beginning of 2 Kings 18. Some of these verses are uh, in the bulletin. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. Hezekiah was Manasseh's father. Hezekiah could not be described in more glowing terms here in 2 Kings 18. It said that he was the best of the best. After David and Solomon, there was no king better than Hezekiah. He followed the Lord. He got rid of the idols. And it says that the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered. A description of the end of Manasseh's father Hezekiah is found in 2 Chronicles 32, verses 32 and 33, where it says, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, in the, king, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did honor him at his death, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. 
Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, was a man of God who led the nation, led at least the part of the nation, Judah, into God's ways. And he was honored at his death by the nation. So the immediate context of Manasseh's story is that Manasseh grew up watching the best king that Judah ever had, his father, Hezekiah. So now we turn our attention to Manasseh himself in 2 Kings 21, beginning verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the despicable practices of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I give to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So our first main point in my outline this morning is Manasseh's terrible sin. For God tells us he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So here's a list of the evil things that he did. He performed the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out. I have a number of points under this heading. I promise to be very short on each one, and I'm honestly just pointing out what's right here in the text with a little bit of editorial comment. He performed the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out. Now listen, when God gave Israel the promised land, he was doing two things at once. He was fulfilling his promise to the Israelites, and he was judging the wickedness of the Canaanites. The people that Joshua and the Israelites conquered were not poor, innocent people who were displaced from their land. They were wicked, pagan people who God brought judgment upon by giving their land to the Israelites. Now Manasseh was returning to the wickedness of the nations God had judged. Secondly, he rebuilt the high places. 
A high place was a local center for worship to a foreign god. Their presence meant that Israel had forsaken Yahweh and given themselves to idolatry. During the times of the kings, there was a constant battle between worshiping the true God Yahweh and the worship of idols. Manasseh's father Hezekiah had torn down the high places in obedience to Yahweh, and now Manasseh reverses the gains of his godly father and rebuilds the high places, reestablishing idolatrous worship. He erected altars for Baal. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, I hope you're familiar with the ministry of the prophet Elijah and how the prophet Elijah battled King Ahab and his wicked queen Jezebel. Much of this battle was because of the worship of Baal. And hopefully you're familiar with that great victory that Elijah won on Mount Carmel. This was the occasion on which God answered Elijah's prayer and sent fire from heaven, consuming Elijah's sacrifice, the stones at the altar, the water that they'd poured on, so that all of Israel would know that Yahweh was the true God. And this display of power won a great victory over Baal and Baal's prophets and left the people of God shouting, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Manasseh reverses the gains Elijah made and re-erects the altars to Baal. Manasseh worshipped the host of heaven, we're told. This is a practice specifically forbidden by God in the law of Moses. In the book of Deuteronomy, which means second law, the Israelites were told not to worship the sun, moon, and stars. You see, these heavenly bodies are dazzling, and they were meant for our good. They should inspire worship of the one who created them instead during times of idolatry. They were often worshiped themselves. And God spells out the punishment for such sin. In Deuteronomy, God commanded the Israelites to apply capital punishment and stone to death anyone who worshipped the host of heaven, like Manasseh. Manasseh built altars to the host of heaven and Asherah in the house of the Lord. In verses 4 and 5 and 7 and 8, God makes a really big deal about the fact that he had chosen Israel and he had chosen Jerusalem as a place to put his temple and as a place where he would come and specially be with his people, and as he says several times, put his name. He said, I am your God, and I'm putting my very name here in Jerusalem in the temple. But Manasseh didn't stop with worshiping the courts of heaven, or the courts of heaven, the host of heaven. He built altars to them and other false gods in the very temple and temple courts. So twice in this passage, God says, what an abomination this is, the very special place that God had said he'd put his name. Manasseh erects, uh, erects idols to the host of heaven. It says in verse 6 that he practiced witchcraft. You see, it was bad enough that Manasseh devoted himself to the worship of idols and other gods, if you read the Old Testament, there are several times in the Old Testament 
where God reminds the nation of Israel how utterly stupid it is to worship a piece of wood or a piece of carved stone. He says, hey, this piece of wood that you carved into this God and you're bowing down to, just you toss it in the fire to warm yourself. It's nothing but a piece of wood. It's false. But see, Manasseh goes beyond the worship of what is false. He participates in witchcraft. He dabbles in the, in the occult. Now, the reason that this is even worse is that the spirit world is real. It is not the worship of a fake God carved from wood. It's the worship of a real world totally opposed to God. Satan is real. Demons are real. And it is extremely dangerous to court their attention and give yourself to them in worship. It is to align yourself with everything that is against God. The references to mediums and communicating with the dead reminds us of the sins of Saul. And last but certainly not least, he burned his son as an offering. As we've looked at Manasseh's terrible sin, we have seen his sin get worse and worse. You see, sin is always bad, but it is even worse when our sin affects others. Manasseh not only sinned personally, he led the people under his care into sin, making it even more heinous. We finish our look at his terrible sin, which with what may be the worst of his sins, he burned his son as an offering. His devotion to idolatrous worship was so intense, he was willing to take his own son, his flesh, his blood, someone he should have loved dearly, and kill him in devotion to his idols. What great wickedness to take someone you should love and care for and offer them as a sacrifice. Can it get any worse than this? Can the Manasseh stoop any lower than to kill his own son? Manasseh's reign can be summarized in verses 6 and 9 where we're told that Manasseh did much evil in the sight of the Lord. He led the people astray to do more evil than the nations that the Lord destroyed when he gave them the promised land. Verse 16 tells us, that Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Because of Manasseh's sin, God promises judgment in verses 10 through 18. I'm going to let you read that at home. Verses 10 through 18, God says he's going to judge Judah and bring great disaster upon Jerusalem because of the great sin that Manasseh led the people into, forsaking God, removing him from their midst. God would give them into the hands of their enemies. In this account of Manasseh's reign in 2 Kings 21, not a single positive word is spoken about Manasseh. 
In light of this, we would expect that Manasseh, at the end of his days on earth, would find himself in the deepest, darkest part of hell because of his great sin. But as Paul Harvey used to say, we need to look at the rest of the story. And the rest of the story occurs in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. In case you are unaware of this, the Old Testament gives us two accountings of the times of the kings of Israel and Judah. One account in 1 and 2 Kings and a second account in 1 and 2 Chronicles. This is not unlike the New Testament giving us four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus in the four Gospels. So if you think we've exhausted the details of Manasseh's life and reign, you're mistaken. There's more to consider. In 2 Chronicles 33, in verses 1 through 9, 2 Chronicles details Manasseh's terrible sin from 1 Kings 21 and repeats almost word for word the sins that first, second, or 2 Kings 21 had laid out. So we're going to start reading in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh. Wait a second. The Lord spoke to Manasseh. In these verses, we see the amazing greatness of the grace of God. After all Manasseh had done and all the sins he had committed, it is nothing short of amazing to read that God spoke to him. What a gracious act on God's part. God initiates communication with Manasseh. And as startling that it is, what we read next is equally stunning. But they paid no attention. When I ask, could it get any worse than killing your own son? How about God graciously coming to you after all of that sin and paying no attention? This may be the greatest sin we've seen him do so far. So now we read in verse 11 of God's judgment, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains and brought him to Babylon. So we read that God brings him judgment. He brings an army from Assyria. They capture Manasseh. They bring him back to Babylon. It says he was bound with chains and hooks. The NIV says they put a hook in his nose and drug him into exile like they were leading an animal to slaughter. What is your reaction when you read this? I must admit that I felt no pity for Manasseh when I read this verse, but rather felt in my heart that he was getting what he deserved. You see, is it not true that when we perceive justice to be done, there's actually some satisfaction in seeing justice done? My spirit within me basically said upon reading this verse, good, I'm glad to see he's getting his just dues. In verses 12 and 13, we read these words. 
And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Well, of course he's in distress. He's in Babylon. He's quite possibly in an Assyrian dungeon. Who wouldn't be in distress? So when we read that he entreated the favor of the Lord his God, what's your reaction to those words? My human reaction is to give God some advice. To tell God, don't believe him. He doesn't mean it. Okay? Remember God, just like there aren't any atheists in foxholes. There are many who suddenly show a great interest in you, Lord, when they find themselves in times of deep distress. I wanted to tell God that Manasseh didn't mean it. Don't listen to him. He doesn't deserve your help, God. It's a good thing that I am not in charge of dispensing grace because Manasseh would not have received any from me. And I would suggest to you that the next words we read are some of the dearest, most remarkable words found anywhere in the Bible. He prayed to God, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea. Is there a greater example of God's grace anywhere in the Bible. Can we dispense with the silly notion that the God of the New Testament is a God of grace and the God of the Old Testament is not? Whoever made this claim clearly never re read this verse. Moses describes God, the God of the Old Testament, in Exodus 34, 7, as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God is and always has been a God of grace. The greatness of the grace of God reached down to a dungeon in Babylon to a terrible, terrible, rebellious sinner named Manasseh and changed his life. Amazing grace. Where sin runs deep, God's grace is more. The next thing we notice in 2 Chronicles is the effect of the grace of God on Manasseh's life. It says, Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon, in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Ophed, and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all four to five cities of Judah. Wait a second. Manasseh's back reigning again. God puts him back in Judah, and gives him his kingdom back. And what we're reading now is, all of a sudden, he's a great leader. 
All of a sudden, he's a king that cares about his people, says, these walls are too small and shabby. We need to build them up so, our, so my people are defended. He also put commanders of the army in the fortified cities, and he took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord. Who put them there? He had. He takes away the idols. He takes away the idols from the temple and the court of the Lord. And all the altars that he had built on the mountains of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord, their God. He becomes a caring leader. He looks out for the people. He restores the altar worship of God, gets rid of the idols that he had set up and says to Judah, we're going to serve Yahweh now. He reverses the sins of his own previous administration. What a wonderful example of true godly repentance. Manasseh's was a life completely changed by the grace he had received. This is the effect the grace of God has on all the lives it touches. So we finish the account of his life by reading now the rest of the Acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words and the, uh, the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithfulness or faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they're all written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. So the question I want to answer in closing is, what does any of this have to do with us today in 2022? And I have five things I'd like to put before you by way of application from what we have Read. The first thing I'd like us to notice from all of this speaking of Manasseh is this. A godly home is no guarantee of personal godliness and faith. Manasseh had a godly father who exemplified how a good king should rule, and Manasseh rejected God and ruled Judah sinfully. Can I make application for a moment to any who are here this morning who are younger or who are listening at home and you're younger? Can I make an application specifically to you? Having a godly mother and father who loved Jesus is not enough. You must believe. You must love God. You must follow Jesus and live for him personally. No one gets to heaven based on the faith of their parents or grandparents. Each of us must believe in Jesus ourselves. 
I am thankful and will always be thankful for a godly mother and a godly father and a Christian heritage going back many generations in my family. But no one gets to heaven based on heritage. We get to heaven by personally believing in Jesus. Second point of application. When you turn from God, you can do terrible things. Manasseh's terrible, terrible sins were the result of turning from God. In Romans, Paul asserts that it is godlessness that leads to wickedness. The first step in becoming a wicked person is to personally reject God. Once God's out of the picture, any sin becomes possible and our lives spiral out of control because sin is never satisfied to remain small. Sin demands more sin, and what starts as a seemingly small breaking of God's standard naturally becomes worse. Little white lies lead to a pattern of dishonesty that can result, if unchecked, in a lifestyle filled with uncontrolled falsehoods. We must refrain from looking at Manasseh's sin or any other person's sin for that matter, and concluding we would never do such a thing. The saying is really true. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Third application, the lasting consequences of sin. One of the things that should cause us to turn to God and believe in Jesus is the reality that sin has consequences. When we considered Manasseh's life after he had received grace, we noticed that most of the things on the sin checklist were rectified after his conversion. He sought to make up for his sin by reestablishing true worship and leading the people into godliness. Did you notice what was missing from the list. We are never told that he got his son back. There were many sins he could make up for after his conversion, but taking his son's life was not one of them. Surely this must have caused him to have to grief on a regular basis. And surely this is a reason to turn to God now if you've never turned to him before. There have been many who have put off faith in Jesus until they've experienced more of life and had their fun. But this is a very dangerous decision. Sin has its consequences and there are those who can attest to the fact that even after being saved, there are results of sin that cannot be fully undone. Secondly, I have some homework for you. Chris Oliver, if you're listening at home, you'll be happy. I've got homework for folks today, and this is your homework. If you jot this down or see me afterwards as a reminder, read 2 Kings 23, 26 to 29. 2 Kings 23, 26 to 29. And read Jeremiah 15, 3 and 4. What you will find in those scriptures is that God fulfilled his promises and still brought judgment on Judah for the sins committed in Manasseh's day.
Sin is awful and has lasting consequences even for those who have received grace. So turn to God now. Fourth item of application. The nature of true conversion. True conversion changes one's life. God's grace changes the lives of those who receive it. To be saved is to repent of sin and to turn from it to God. An unchanged life is an unconverted life. This is important to remember. It's especially important to remember in our day when the good news of the gospel has been so distorted as to somehow allow for salvation without a changed life. Can I say in the strongest terms, this is a false gospel? Let me also remind us that God's grace will one day result in our glorification and a life free from sin, but that wonderful day is in the future. Real Christians struggle with sin, but real Christians are changed people. They no, they no longer live for sin, and they repent of their sin because their sin now causes them grief. We should daily display the effect of the grace of God in our lives. Others should see it. Trust me, there was no missing the change in Manasseh's behavior. By God's grace, he was a changed person. And fifth and finally, let's remember that grace is an encouragement to prayer. The best part of Manasseh's story is obviously what it tells us about the grace of God. It's a reminder to us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. God's grace is greater than all our sin. This is a wonderful truth to remember at the start of a new year. Our God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. When we cry out to him, he will hear us and answer us. He will pick us up again and put us on the right path. What a great encouragement for prayer. As 2022 begins, don't stop praying for your children, especially any that seem prodigal. God's grace can reach them. Don't stop praying for those unsaved relatives who show no interest in God or may have even been antagonistic to any attempt on your part to speak to them about Jesus. Maybe this will be the year that God's grace comes to their lives. God can reach them. So let's obey God's command and pray for our leaders. Our nation seems to be spinning out of control. We seem to be reaping the consequences of rejecting God. And it seems to go from bad to worse. Now is the time for prayer. For maybe this is the year God's grace comes to our nation in a powerful way. God can reach our leaders. He can change their lives. He can cause them to lead in ways of godliness like we did with Manasseh. So let's make 2022 
a year of prayer because God loves to show grace to those who ask him for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for the good news of the grace of the gospel message that can reach even the most terrible of sinners like it did for Manasseh. We thank you that you love to show mercy. You love to show grace. I pray that this would be a year that we would see answers to our prayers for those who need your grace the most, for relatives, for family, for our nation. Lord, we need you. We need your grace. Give us grace to live for you, to show what a repentant, changed life looks like to those who see us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.